Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. You're listening to Write for Type. This is Sarah Paretsky. Hey, this is Brian Panowitz. This is Laura McHugh. This is Lawrence Block. This is Attica Locke. Wow, that's a good question. Well, that's an interesting question. Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a great question. This is Alex Segura, and you are listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I have a jam-packed episode for you today. You know, we've had uh, some scheduling mishaps, some interviews that fell through, promises made that didn't come true, co-hosts that fell out. It's It's been a mess lately, uh, which is weird because, you know, the rest of the world is really humming along so nicely. But I'm back and uh, got a great one for you today. It's supersized, a lot of great stuff to get to. Before we get going today, though, I, I do want to acknowledge a loss in the writer types family. Uh, Dan and Kate Malman's dog, Franklin, passed away, and I want to send my sympathies to them. Franklin was a real curmudgeon, but a really sweet one. He was a loyal and faithful friend, and then I am glad that I got to meet him at least once. So from the writer types family to you, Dan and Kate, we are sorry for your loss. So I bring you today maybe the wildest collection of accents on four authors I could have possibly thought of. Uh, we've got New York Tough, uh, Appalachian Drawl, Australian Twang, and good old California Neutral for you today. So let's get going with my first guest, Gigi Pondian. Gigi is the author of two different series. She's got the Jaya Jones Treasure Hunt Mysteries and the Accidental Alchemist series, both of which are rooted in mystery, but span the genres into fantasy, adventure, and more. And we started our chat like most conversations do these days with how things are going during quarantine. I don't know how even in quarantine, all of our lives are so ridiculous still. It has gotten a little out of hand. I, I have to say, uh, the, I've been lucky enough to be working from home almost continually. I had about five, five weeks down, but I, I, somehow it, it is busier than driving to an office, even though I just have to sort of, I literally come down three steps into my little <laughs> garage office here. And yeah, I don't know how it got away from me. Yeah, yeah. No, me too. Exactly. And I've had to rejig things at home. I'm incredibly fortunate that I can work from home as well, but my husband and I both are. So we've set up offices at the opposite ends of the house. So we uh. won't just be like calling to each other from the other room, which is, you know, such the danger. That is smart. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. The worst part for me is this is also my writing office. So it's like I'll, I'll spend 10 hours down here working at my day job and then I go up and I eat dinner with the family. And then after they all go to bed, I'm like, oh, man, I got to go sit at that same damn computer. <laughs> well, see, I used to be a cafe writer until all of this happened. And uh -huh. so I've had to figure out. So now my study, I have one side for day job and one side of the desk. I just switch. It's just this big old table. So I just switch sides. So I have a different view to psychologically trick myself. Oh, that's smart. So. And, and is it working? Are you being productive? You know, I don't know. It's uh, sometimes more than other days, working working well enough to get it done. Well, Gigi, you've got two series, the Accidental Alchemist and the Jaya Jones series, which you really sort of walk the line of genres. I think if you wanted to, you could have sort of thrown your hat into more of like a sci-fi fantasy world and stuff. But you have uh, planted your flag in the crime and mystery community. Why did you choose that side of the fence? I have never known exactly how to define my fiction. Broadly, I definitely think of it in terms of mystery just because that's what I love to read. Even when I was a kid, even though the stories that I want to tell, um, I've never been sure exactly where they fit. It's always been the mystery is the the driving piece of it, that puzzle, that little adventure puzzle. Right. Well, and obviously your upbringing, traveling around the world influences your writing today. Do you think that like being exposed to that many cultures and that many different places when you were young, and I'm assuming that also meant maybe being alone a lot, did that influence your decision to become a writer in the first place? Definitely. And it wasn't that we were traveling constantly. My parents were professors at a university in Southern California before they retired a few years ago. And so it was on all of their research trips and summer breaks when they would be able to go do more in-depth research travels and conference travels, things like that. But since I'm an only child, I 
definitely had lots of time on my own. They were always great at involving me on things, but sometimes there would be other kids to play with. And sometimes it would just be me having to make my own entertainment. And what is more entertaining than being in a completely foreign place where you get to explore and have all of these adventures that are like the things that you've seen in movies or read about in books, but are not like your life in Southern California in suburbia. Uh, so that's when I started making up stories to entertain just myself. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I guess I feel like I went through the same thing. I grew up with a, a single father and just spent a tremendous amount of time just sort of rattling around the house by myself. And like you say, having to entertain your own mind while, you know, before the world of iPads and cell phones and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great uh, crucible for, for a budding storyteller. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and storytelling is exactly it, that I didn't ever think at that time that I wanted to grow up and be a writer, but I wanted to somehow be involved in storytelling. And I actually, I first, my first medium when I was a high school theater geek was to write screenplays and act in little movies that we would make, things like that. Even before I thought about writing a novel, I wrote those little screenplays. Well, now your plots are intricate, let's say, and I assume that they need a lot of uh, pre-planning to work them out. Now, I I've established many times before that I am not smart enough to write a, a story like that, but you at one point were on track for a PhD. So, okay, we know you're smart. So what I want to know about, about creating a story like that, like a lot of people use beta readers for, you know, like, does this make sense? Are you connecting with the characters? Do you ever show something to someone early, like for the sole purpose of like, can you figure this out or have I tricked you? Yeah. So I actually have three stages of beta readers. I'm so lucky that over the years I have built up a wonderful group of critique partners, but some of them are really great with plot and the, the big picture story thinking. And some of them are such fantastic writers that they're the ones who help me closer to the end clean up my clunky language because going back to storytelling that I think of myself as more of a storyteller than a writer and so I know that is my strength in the story and that I have to work harder to get that last push of getting the language really good at the end uh -huh. but it's the, the the telling the story early on and coming up with the characters and, and the, the intricate plot that's really what um what I have such fun with, but I, I have readers that can help me with the first messy outline. Most folks read in the middle, and then I have two readers that are just brilliant uh, with language who help me with that last pass at the end. Nice. And is that part of the the challenge for you when you're coming up with the plot like this? Is like, all right, no one's going to be able to crack this one. Well, th the funny thing is that I feel like readers like to be able to get it at a certain point, but not too early. Mm. And so this was actually the case with um, my latest Jaya Jones novel, which had um, a couple of interwoven storylines, but I've had several readers tell me that they guessed like about one chapter before Jaya put it together. Oh. But I feel like that's the sweet spot that you can have people you know, right up until then, and then they think they get it, and then it turns out that they're right. There's also lots of people who didn't get the twist, but, um, but that was actually fun to see in that recent book. Your latest The Alchemist's Illusion is nominated for an Anthony Award this year, so congratulations. Thank you. But of course, we won't be able to be there in person for the I ceremony. Know, I know. But at this point, you have so many awards. It's got to be better this way, right? Is is it more of a burden to have to carry these things back in your suitcase? Uh -huh, that's very that's very <laughs> kind of you. I have been very lucky to win several awards, though. But each time, it's such a thrill because each book is its own journey and hurdle, and putting your heart and soul onto the page and putting it out there, and not knowing what other people will think of it, and. I'd like to think that I'm becoming a better writer as I go. And The Alchemist Illusion was my most ambitious novel to date. I have a whole series of scenes that are set in the past that are interspersed in this parallel storyline with 
a twist that I don't think people get this one, but when I was writing it, I did not know if I would be able to pull off the book and I almost gave up on it several times, but I'm so glad that I stuck with it. But it was the book that I was closest to abandoning during the writing. Oh, wow. And uh, even before the Anthony, it was um, nominated for the Sue Grafton Memorial Award given out at the Edgars, which sadly was also canceled this year. <laughs> yeah. And I had an amazing pair of shoes that I was going to wear to it too. <laughs> but, uh, but I got to hang out online with all of my fellow nominees and we were all rooting for a six-way tie, which was one of the reminding me of the <laughs> wonderful writing community that we have. Oh, that's great. Well, all right, then speaking of community, you are also uh, one of the co-founders of the Crime Writers of Color group. Trying to dig back to the, the first impetus of, of creating a group like this, was it really that you wanted to get other crime writers of color together to advocate for each other and, and to have a stronger voice with numbers? Or was the motivation more just to sort of bring people together when you, you know, you might be spending time walking through a conference hall and thinking, wow, there are not that many other writers of color. And yet to be able to find, well, there actually are a lot of us out there. All of the above, I okay. think. And I, I I can also say that I, uh, even though I was one of the co-founders along with Kelly Garrett and Walter Mosley, Kelly was really the driving force for all of this. As soon as she had her first novel coming out, uh, we shared a publisher, Midnight Inc. And so we became friends. And so she was the one who really started um, talking to me. We were like brainstorming about how we could do this type of thing. And, and so we were coming up with different ideas. And then she all, and then she was also in conversation with Walter Mosley about it. But for everyone who knows her, she is just such a generous soul. Um, and so she's really the one that brought everybody together. But I was just glad to be able to be a sounding board and help figure out how I could bring together folks that the mainstream hasn't always recognized and, you know, to have a group that we could be there to discuss the challenges in publishing and to help lift up each other's work. So it's, it's been a really great experience being a part of the group. And once things really got started rolling and more and more people started to sign up and almost come out of the woodwork, was it surprising to you that there were more writers of color in, within the community that maybe without having a platform and having a voice just had been remaining silent? Yeah, it's been really, we were, we were all surprised by how quickly it grew in numbers. And now it's um, around 200 members. And it was really eye-opening to me to see how many people just hadn't necessarily known how to get involved or how to feel comfortable taking a step into right. the mystery writing community. From my background, I am very lucky because of those experiences, being in, in places where I was an outsider from a young age, that I've always felt comfortable stepping into uncomfortable situations. So even if I'm the only person who looks like me from my background in a certain environment, I grew up with my parents telling me, yep, you belong here. That's cool. Go do it. And if anyone else has a problem, that's their problem. And so I've, right. I've always felt comfortable doing that. And, but I know that that's so much of a privilege to even be coming at it from that point of view. And it's just really tremendous to be able to meet up with other folks now. And it's one of those things that you don't know what you're missing until you have it. And also mm. to be able to lift others up and, and bring other people into spaces that they wouldn't necessarily have felt comfortable. Right. And you guys have your own podcast now, too. And I, we, we can assume Writer Types listeners are podcast fans. So uh, they should be checking out the Crime Writers of Color podcast, right? Yeah. So Robert Justice is an emerging author who um, reached out to me and Kelly letting us know about his experience doing podcasts. And so he had the interest and the experience and everything that's done in this group from the website to the social media to the, the compiled list of books. It's all just folks who are wanting to give back to the community and volunteering their time. So everyone who's doing things like this, 
they've just come up with the idea and said, hey, how about if I do this to help lift everybody up? And so Robert Justice, he's an amazing podcaster. He reads the books and learns so much about everyone who he interviews. And so far, it's it's been really exciting to see what he's done with that. Excellent. Yeah. Well, experience uh, and that sweet, sweet baritone that he's got. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great radio voice. <laughs> Well, it's been a while since I've shared some book recommendations with you all, and I have been reading some pretty darn good books lately. Let's start with Joe Lansdale's More Better Deals. Uh, This is yet another barn burner of a novel, and liking a Joe Lansdale novel is no surprise for me, but this one is pure Jim Thompson-style noir, and I loved it. It's fast, it's gritty, it's so Southern fried, the grease sticks to your fingers, if for some weird reason you have not read Joe Lansdale yet, uh, I'm disappointed in you, first of all, but you can make up for this mistake in your life and start here with this one. And to be honest, I, I'm jealous of people who get to discover Joe Lansdale for the first time. I, if, if I could go back and read Sunset and Sawdust, which was the first Lansdale I ever read, if I could read that for the first time again, oh, that would be amazing. So more better deals by Joe Lansdale it's out now. It is uh, as good as it gets on the crime fiction front. So check that out. Okay, well, my next guest is Poppy G from Australia, but she writes about the small island of Tasmania off the Australian coast in her newest Vanishing Falls. This is a twisty, slow burn mystery set in this exotic locale. And it's the kind of book that's best if you really immerse yourself in it. I talked to Poppy across many time zones where, for her, it was already tomorrow. Vanishing Falls is your second novel. uh, And I noticed a long time between books. And and I'm always curious about how long it takes people to write and and sort of what, what they go through. Then I noticed that you have three kids and it all made sense. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When you throw three children in. So Bay of Fires was published in 2013 and since then I've written three manuscripts and this is the third one. The first one was quite obscure and it was a mystery set on a sheep farm in Tasmania in 1837. Surprisingly, the publishers weren't that interested. <laughs> yeah, I, I did I did a bit of a detour. Well, at least you, you've you've been keeping yourself busy even even if not all of them have uh, have been released. So you're you're not you weren't just slacking off for those years. No, I wasn't slacking off. I just yeah, took a bit of a side trip. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I will admit, this is the first book uh, that I've ever read that takes place in Tasmania. And it is a place that uh, I'm sure most Americans know next to nothing about. Is Tasmania a bit of a mystery even to mainland Australians? Sometimes they do forget to include it on the map, yes. So it's (laughs) a tiny island located at the bottom of Australia. It's it's full of forest and old forest. It's quite remote. It's, It's got a smaller population. And it's also, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't call it poor. It doesn't feel poor, but it certainly performs um, lowest in Australia at every level from employment to education and health and investment and all that sort of thing. So, but at the same time, it's very rich in um, obviously the gorgeous forests and the wine industry, beautiful produce. It's a great place for a holiday. And lots of people come down and spend a week driving around. You could drive around the whole island in a week. And you uh, grew up there or just spent some time there when you were young? Yeah, I was born there and I grew up there. My parents and my sister and most of my cousins all still live there. So I guess um, I find it as a writer, like it's a very beautiful place, obviously, but it's also a place of contrast. So I quite like that. And also like the small town factor that I, it's, you've got lots, lots of diverse people all living in a very, in very small areas, which as a writer that leads to lots of potential conflict and the the dramas and, and the history of Tasmania is very dark as well. So I quite like that, the contrast between the light and the dark. It sounds like it was tailor-made for a mystery novel. It was tailor-made for a mystery novel. There's actually about three novels I know of coming out in the next few months that are set there. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Yeah. Well, now, so in Vanishing Falls, Joelle is, she's a fascinating protagonist because she's got her, her share of, you know, let, let's call them quirks. Yes. Uh, how did you sort of pick and choose what idiosyncrasies she has and then how to also make them work for you in the setting of a mystery novel? Yeah, so I guess you could call her an amateur sleuth in a way, which I quite like. I prefer that in many ways to a seasoned policeman or a hardened journalist. Uh, You know, you just never know what an amateur sleuth might be capable of or incapable of. And I think when I was writing her, um, she says she's got no filter. She says whatever pops into her head. So as you're writing, you sort of start sometimes describing what a character might be thinking and then I would always have to stop and go, no, no, she says that. And then that was really <laughs> fun to write that because then you have the reaction from the other characters. She was the easiest character to write. She was who I started with and she is very joyful and exuberant and she's quite fun to write because there's a lot of darkness in the novel it's quite gritty and yet she is what I would call um, a ray of sunshine writing her was chicken soup for the soul she just is a happy person she's got a beautiful relationship so in these sort of dark mystery novels it's quite refreshing to have uh, someone like her. Well it sounds like maybe uh, writing her was a, a way for you to say some of the things that you might want to say in real life too yeah? Yeah <laughs> I wish. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) There is that, you know, when you write a nasty character and they say something awful, that's always fun to write, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I I think at some level, you know, all the characters have whatever little slice of ourselves in them. But I think even more than putting ourselves in them, I always find that writers put the things that maybe they want to see in themselves or they, you know, like you say, the things that you would want to be able to say out loud instead of just thinking or the, the thing that you would want to, if, if the situation calls for you to be perhaps a little abrupt and maybe rude, like I've, I could never do that in real life because I'm so conflict averse. But if I can write a character that's just going to get in there and mix it up, that's really satisfying. It can be very satisfying. That's right. Well, and you also, I mean, this has a fairly large cast of characters. Did you find it uh, difficult at all to sort of to shuffle around and be like, okay, what what piece of information of this mystery do I give to what character? And how do you, as you're sort of slowly doling out the, the mystery that's unfolding? I think I approached it from the opposite way. So I sort of wrote all the characters and I wrote it thinking I don't know who the villain is and I so I sort of wrote it thinking that anyone could be the villain and then when I got to the end and I did a couple of different drafts of the ending and then I had to go back through and make sure that the clues did line up. So I kind uh-huh. of thought it was the two, the, they're sort of like that creative, organic, write the story and then there's more the scientific process of, of making sure all the pieces of the puzzle are consistent and will fit together. It's fascinating because, uh, you know, a book like this that, that is building to an ending where, you know, all will be revealed, you do have to sort of constantly protect your secrets as the writer and, and be careful not to reveal too much too early. Is that That's what that, that draft of the novel is, is, is picking and choosing the places where you're dropping information? I think so. Yeah. It's, I, you know, I almost can't even explain how, and I feel like certainly as a writer, it's something I'm still working on like for me the characters and the landscape that just comes but the making sure the uh, mystery side of it that that's a real challenge and I have to work really hard at it and I you know I did make some mistakes with one of I won't give it away but there was um I will say a murder weapon that I hadn't researched properly so I actually had to rewrite a lot of it afterwards once I realized that I'd made this error which was really Uh annoying It's always the little things that get us in during edits, isn't it? Yeah, you learn your lesson, don't you? <laughs> Publishers like to put words uh, like propulsive and page turning on a book. It, it always sort of looks good on the jacket. But I, I feel like for this, it's almost a bit of a misdirect because this book takes its time. Yes. And, you know, it's a book that I feel like, it, you know, it's better to be devoured sort of in big chunks on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And I always feel like how a person reads sometimes dictates the kind of books that, that, that they like. I mean, does, does how you read and, and the things that you like to read influence the kind of book that you then in turn want to write? Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. Cause I would describe this as a slow burn psychological mystery. So 
you know, and some people like that, but other people, um, look, I'm just, I've almost finished your book, The Year I Died Seven Times, which I'm absolutely loving. That Then that is a complete opposite. Yeah. So there you go. It's fast. And um, what I loved about your protagonist, can I just say, Ridley Allen, is he is a little bit um, similar to my character, Joel, in that he's not a um, experienced detective by any means. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's terrible at it. Yeah, he's terrible. And and I, you know, he's kind. Of, I don't know. Do you call it an anti? Well, he's not an anti-hero, but he's not a typical hero. He's very bad at fighting and right. witting him. And I think that's what I loved when I was writing Joel is that it's it's unexpected. It's an unexpected person who's sort of getting involved in in this mystery. So I think when I've come into my novel, I, I read a broad range of things. I, I do love mystery and I do love crime, but I also do like um, a lot of literary type novels. If, that's probably why mine is more of a slow burn, that it sort of does combine. Because you, your character, Ridley Allen, has a great backstory, but you hint at it, whereas I would right. go into enormous detail. <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, it's just a different approach, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and the great thing is there's room on everyone's bookshelves for for both kinds. I mean, I know I definitely find that if I get done with a book that is, you know, really a barn burner and and, and I almost need to slow down and sort of balance that out. And I don't think anyone can spend all of their reading time just reading the same type of book over and over. Oh, that's so true. And I even love young adult, actually. I find um, they're quite original and risky in a way yeah and and i you know and you throw in a true crime every now and then you know just just Mm. to kind of mix it up yeah yeah well this is very exciting uh you say you're two days away now this book comes out on the 20th of august here in the states but uh you're you're right on the cusp of it down uh, down there are you going to be able to get out and uh celebrate it all do an appearance or you have to do this whole thing uh from lockdown in your home yeah, I know. I'll be sitting at the kitchen table having a glass of champagne. That's right. I think um, even though, you know, there's a low cases of coronavirus here in Brisbane where I live and people are able to move freely, there's certainly um, no one's meeting in big groups. So, yeah, there won't mm. be um, a big party or anything like that. But I definitely will celebrate with a glass of champagne. <laughs> All right. Well, we will raise a glass with you, Poppy. And congratulations. Oh, thank, you, <laughs> thank you very much. All right, another book recommendation for you. We Are All the Same in the Dark by Julia Heberlein was a real discovery for me. Uh, I tried to get her on the show. Things didn't work out. uh, So unfortunately, I don't think she's going to be able to join me for an interview. But I absolutely loved this book. I didn't quite know what to expect at first, but I was totally sucked in and, and just drawn deep into this story. The way she reveals information is really masterful. That's a a trick that I'm always very leery of in in some mysteries that are slow to dole out information, but she really just kept me guessing and kept me turning the pages on this. Uh, Of course, in the end, it's all about the characters, and this one is packed with so many great ones. Uh, This is fresh out and really worth your time. We are all the same in the dark. This is absolutely gonna be in my top five for the year for sure. Okay, our next author and our next accent. David Joy is someone who I get really excited about when he has a new book out, and his latest is called When These Mountains Burn. David's previous books are stellar examples of Appalachian noir, as he puts it, starting with his debut where all light tends to go, and then the weight of this world, and then the line that held us. I've been dying to talk to David for a long time now, so I'm glad I finally got the chance. When These Mountains Burn is the latest novel, and I've I've sort of watched you over the years just, uh, you know, on social media as each new book comes out, it seems like you you think whatever is the newest is probably your best work. Are you really getting better with each one or is kind of the shiniest new thing always going to be your favorite? Yeah, I think that's, well, I think that's one of the hard things as an artist in general, and you'll probably say the same thing with your work, is really the only thing you're ever interested in is what you're currently working on. Right. So I don't know that it's necessarily always true, you know, that the books are getting better and better. I think that's obviously the hope. Obviously, there will come a 
point in time where where you've peaked out and <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if I picked that yet or not. Personally, I'm always going to be most excited about, you know, what I'm currently working on. And, and that's the same with this. I, I like this novel, obviously, but, uh, you know, I'm currently working on a novel that's better. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you tend to tackle people that are on the edges, desperate people, people sometimes with little hope for a better future. Are you yourself a, a pessimist in life? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm super pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. I don't. You know, I just got off the phone with another interview, and in this uh, we were talking about the death of culture, and he was basically asking me if I had any hope of of kind of old time mountain culture uh, experiencing any sort of revival or, or reclamation, and it's like no. I told him, I said, I think we're one generation or two generations from cultural extinction. And and I, I could just hear the, the silence in him because of just how hopeless of a response. <laughs> but I mean, you have to have uh, some sort of hope to to give characters, you know, some sort of arc in a story, right? I mean, they can't just start wallowing in the mud and and end up there. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think the characters have to remain hopeful in in some ways. They have to have a dream, you know. Every, you got to have something that you're trying to accomplish and, and, you know, whatever that may be, it may be small too. So, you know, if we're talking about worldview, am I a hopeful person? Uh, absolutely not. If we go fishing, I'm an incredibly hopeful person. <laughs> uh, if me and you sit down on the bank, I'm 100% convinced that we're going to catch fish. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's about, about scale as well. Right. And then, I mean, even, characters in in something like when these mountains burn i mean they're sometimes you have to be opportunistic when you find those glimmers of hope right and uh, if that puts you on the wrong side of the law then uh, well that's the path you're going to take yeah yeah i'm i'm typically writing about people who have been dealt a very short hand where those chances don't come along very often i think that opportunism is a, is kind of a mentality for a lot of the characters that i'm writing about now, my parents live in North Carolina as well, but it might as well be a, a different world from the world that you describe in, in your books. They live on a man-made lake next to a golf course, you know, in a neighborhood filled with seven-bedroom homes. I mean, I think people maybe outside of a certain region, they might say, oh, the, you know, he writes about North Carolina, or they can, they can tag, you know, one state or one area in sort of generalities, but you seem to write about a place that's a very, very specific corner of the world that is almost not defined by borders. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I'm writing about a very specific people uh, because the reality is the County that I'm writing about Jackson County probably has more. Well, I know this for a fact, we've got more top 10 private golf resorts than anywhere else in the country. But it's outside wealth that has moved into a region uh, largely in a very exploitative uh, sense. There's no stratification of wealth here. Directly on the outside of a gated community, you might have uh, you know, people, people just barely scraping by. Uh, that's the reality of this place. And, and it's more that there's no interaction between the types of people that I'm writing about and those other people. You know, I have a whole lot more in common with the cashier at, at Dollar General than I do the guy who lives in Wade Hampton, whose family owns Piggly Wiggly. Uh, you know, I, I don't. Right. That's a that's a just a culture and a people that I have no interactions with and no understanding of. Right now, is this true that I read you don't write at a desk? Tip it, no, no. I, I've never had a desk. I've never had an office. Uh, you know, I've always lived in some place really small. We we bought a house finally this past year, but the house I bought is 800 square feet. You know, there's one bedroom, one bath. There's a kitchen and a little bit of a living room area. There's there's no, you couldn't hit, you couldn't fit a desk in there. Um, <laughs> and then so for the most part, I've always just uh, I've written sitting on a couch or laying in a bed or moving around from room to room to try to keep my back from hurting too bad. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, and, and you wrote a lot before you hit on anything that you thought was worthy to, to put out there. I mean, was that an important part of your development as a writer, like putting down all those words that no one is ever going to see but you? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and honestly, I think that's something that still takes place, especially early on in the fiction. Uh, typically, people are writing short stories. Well, to this day, I've, there's only one short story that I even think is, is remotely decent rest of them are bad. I'm just incapable of writing a short story. And so all of that early stuff, especially, uh, you know, I never even understood the form. Uh, so it was a matter of, of just kind of honing the language. Uh, and then when you start trying to, to write at the expanse of a novel, that's an entirely other beast. And, you know, you know that's another monster altogether. And, and so you're going to fail at that. And, and I always, you know, I used to, I used to literally burn those books. I, I would, I would print them out, take them out in the yard and burn them as, as just a reminder. Harry Cruz talked about that. You know, Harry Cruz said that the people will reach a point in a book where they know that they've taken a wrong turn and that the coward uh, will go back and try to force it to work. They'll try to make it fit because they're scared of having to go back and do that work again. And he said, the writer throws it to the fire. Uh, and I think that's right. At the same time, I, I still do that. You know, when I wrote The Line That Held Us, I wrote an entire novel that wound up uh, getting scratched. May very well happen with the book I'm working on. I may reach the end and realize, ah, this doesn't work. I used to go fishing with my grandfather in, in the Mississippi River and in, in lakes around Iowa, but I've, I have not been fishing very much in many, many years. So if you were to take out a city boy like myself, yeah. what what life lessons can I learn while I'm fishing with you? Man, it might boil down to, the, uh, I can't remember that Alex Taylor quote, but there's an Alex Taylor uh, quote in one of his short stories about how a, a calm moment beside calm water is enough to steal the breaking of all the world's hearts or something like that. Uh, and I, th I think that's largely it. You know, we've experienced this, especially in the age of coronavirus. There's kind of been this uh, back to nature mentality. You know, people are recognizing they can get in the woods and, and catch a break. And, and so I think that's a lot of it. And I think the other side of it is that's uh, maybe the extent of my hope. Uh, <laughs> I mean, casting a line in the water and expecting something to, to bite it and be able to catch it. That's very much uh, an act of hope. Absolutely. <laughs> well, now, I, you are obviously a, a storyteller at heart, and this, this comes from someplace deep inside of you. Are, are you good around a campfire telling stories? Are you a raconteur in that way, or do you need time to hone and craft a tale? Yeah, I can't tell a story orally to save my life. Uh, <laughs> not at all. And that, and that's funny in the sense that, you know, a lot of writers talk about being really avid readers as youngsters, and I wasn't. You know, I can count the books that I loved as a child on two fingers. But I grew up in a very rich oral storytelling tradition. Uh, you know, I was surrounded by storytellers. Uh, my grandmother probably being the greatest storyteller to this date that I've ever heard. Um, but where she could tell a story orally, I can't do that. I, I figured out pretty early that I couldn't do that, uh, but that maybe I could write one. Well, we look forward to uh, every time you do write one of these down. And When These Mountains Burn uh, is one that is going to jump right to the top of, of my pile as soon as it uh, lands on my doorstep. So uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time and talking to me, David, and uh, big big fan over here. Yes, I'm, I hope you like it. All right, one more book recommendation for you. And right here, I could easily jump on the pile with everyone else talking up S.A. Cosby's Blacktop Wasteland, but you can just go back and listen to my interview with Sean to hear how much I love that one. So right now, I want to shine a light on a smaller novel, Wyoming by J.P. Gritton. This was a gritty slice of noir and had one of the stronger narrative voices I'd read in quite a while. The language and the rhythm of it just re it really took me to another place and immersed me right in the story. It's a great voice. I really love this. So please uh, check that one out. And of course, all the books that uh, I'm mentioning and, and that our authors have written uh, can be ordered from your local indie bookstore uh, or from afar at a, a far-flung indie bookstore. Any number of the great 
mystery bookstores all across the country who are struggling right now and really do need your help. They do online ordering and shipping just like you know the big one does. And you also get the personal touch and you get to help out a small business who are really out there on the front lines trying to keep reading alive. Okay, time for one more. And this is a true crime novel. Author Jax Miller dove deep into the story of two missing girls in rural Oklahoma in her book, Hell in the Heartland. And this is a frightening look at a horrific crime. It's also a triumphant portrait of a family and a community who hasn't forgotten their own in this 20 year old case. Jax has lived in Ireland, and when we talked, she was in Oklahoma with the family of the victims, uh, but you'll hear that she is not from either one of those places as we round out this weird global tour of accents that uh, frankly might sound fake, but believe me, they are all totally real. So Jax Miller, welcome to Writer Types, uh, a true crime book, which I don't have enough of on this show. So I'm excited to talk about this new book, Hell in the Heartland, Murder, Meth, and the Case of Two Missing Girls. Uh, it, that's a heck of a hook right there. So <laughs> for, first, just, can you give us just the headline uh, uh, about this crime of, of what happened? Yeah, it started uh, on the late evening into the early morning, December 30th, 1999, a trailer was found in flames deep in the prairies of Oklahoma. They had found one body that belonging to mother Kathy Freeman. It was assumed that her husband had killed her and abducted their teenage daughter and her best friend who'd been sleeping over the night before. Uh, flash forward 24 hours later, the friend's parents went there to look for clues and they found the prime suspect, the husband, they found his body in the remains the next day. And the wow. two girls have been missing ever since. How did you first stumble on this story, which as you say, is 20 years old now. How did you find this in the first place? I don't remember exactly where I first heard it from. It, it was probably some unsolved mysteries episode or something like that but it always stuck with me and in 2015 when I made the choice to switch from fiction to nonfiction, I says well I wonder what's going on with that story I looked it up with some keywords like fire best friends Oklahoma and uh, that week they were looking for the girls bodies and I says wow this story is still so active all these years later I says I think this is what I want to do now, I think uh, it's pretty easy to tell from your accent. You are not a native Oklahoman. So. <laughs> no, I sound more like Robert De Niro. <laughs> Even from halfway across the country, you this this locked in and something about it captured your imagination, just sort of stuck in the back of your head, yeah? Yeah, it really did. And the first thing I did was I called Loreen Bible, um, who is the mother of missing child, Laura Bible. And I called her up on the phone and I says, uh, you know, I think I want to write a story about this. And she was like, come on out. Sure. You know? And I think she kind of had that attitude. I know now, like, yeah, she's not going to come. You know, I, I was, <laughs> call I, I was calling her from Ireland. I, I lived in Ireland for nearly 10 years and, uh, she's like, yeah, she ain't going to come. And I, I did come. And I remember that first conversation with her. I says, listen, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And she's like, well, Neither do I, but I just keep doing it anyway. <laughs> and, uh, wow. you know, that's that's how this all got started. Now, in it was a conscious decision to switch to true crime. I mean, is part of being a true crime writer, I, I feel from the outside, is you have to be a bit of an obsessive, don't you? Yes, and that is the only thing I have to offer in this world. I am very obsessive. <laughs> I am very obsessive. I, I half joke, you know, my, my father has Asperger's, and I think I inherited that single-mindedness. Once I get my hands on something, it's like a dog with a bone. I don't let go. I'm very obsessive. Now, yes, it was a, a conscious choice, and I did choose this story at first because of its, of its potential. And it was strictly from a storytelling point of view, but it didn't take long for me to really become obsessed. It didn't take long for me to form uh, relationships with the families. And, um, I mean, Oklahoma has now become a second home. It's been nearly five years and I love everyone involved. I'm very immersed in this story. When you were researching this, I mean, there's the fine line between, you know, someone who can, who's going to tell a story and report on what happened and sort of lay it out for people. But you really dove into this. I mean, you were trying to solve this crime. Yeah. In a way, I, I guess so. But I hadn't realized how 
how invested the families were. I had no idea that Loreen Bible and her family were knocking on doors and doing their thing. I really did not know. Um, I think naively I came into it thinking that these were these helpless people and they're anything but. They call themselves the BBI, the Bible Bureau of Investigation. And <laughs> and, and they were doing the, all the work. So it wasn't like I was trying to actively solve it. But I, I wanted to know the truth you know, for them. I wanted to see them get to the bottom of, of things. And my aim was, well, let me help with the publicity side. Because I knew that any attention it could bring helps tips come forward. So I really wanted to see it through with the families. And during your time spent, you know, interviewing people and hunting anyone down, did you ever feel like, oh, I'm getting close to something? And it, did it ever get, you know, I guess the romantic writer side of me is like, oh, did it get scary? Were you ever under threat? Did you ever uncover too much? Did it go into that kind of world? Or? <laughs> uh, yeah, every day. <laughs> no, no. And, and it really was. I mean, there were certainly times where I was threatened. I I'd faced loaded guns during this time. Wow. I had dug in the mud for the girl's bones. This was not me sitting at a desk with a notebook. I was as much inside as I could get. And that was the point. I, I never had any intention from writing from a desk because I think a lot of true crime writers do a big disservice to, to families and relatives and, 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 and real life cold cases. I think it's very sterile. I think, well, you might as well be a journalist. You might as well write a newspaper. I really, it's like, how can I bring readers in if I'm not inside myself? Yeah. And that's an interesting distinction you make. I mean, because there is journalism and, and just reporting the facts, but a, a true crime book like this that is so it's more immersive. Yeah, you do kind of I mean, you have to immerse yourself if you want the reader to be immersed. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, I don't have any regrets about it. I think it's so important to do that. Um you know, I can sit here and tell you about 16-year-old Laura Bible from, you know, so-and-so high school and this and that. Or I can tell you that she smells like hay and had yet to kiss a boy. I mean, which one do you relate to? Right. You know, I think that's important because so often in true crime, you don't know the people you're talking about as people. You know them as victims. You know them for their crimes. And I didn't want that. I wanted you to know the girls for who they were and the wholesome girls they were. You know, I, I see people talk about Ted Bundy all the time and I challenge him. Well, tell me one of his victims' names. And you can't uh -huh. because it's always focused on, 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 on the macabre. And I didn't want to do that with this. When you invest so much of yourself in someone else's story like that, a story that you know has a tragic ending, I mean, did it ever wear on you and become almost too heavy? Did you have to sort of take breaks after a while or? A lot of my book talks about my own mental health and the deterioration of my mental health. As I started for the first time, I started getting panic attacks. I mean, true crippling. I couldn't even leave my home. And I, I talk about it in the book about how paralyzed I was with fear. I, and a lot of that was the threats that came and knowing that the killers are still out there. Remember when I came into this story, we don't know what we know now. Now there's been an arrest. Now we know who did it. That wasn't the case when I first came to this story. And maybe it's the city girl in me. I don't do well in the country. It was really spooky. <laughs> I mean, it was really spooky. I, you know, and there were plenty of times where I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And uh, on one specific time I, I bought my plane tickets. I said, I'm going back to Dublin. I said, I'm done with this. And I was sitting in the airport and it dawned on me. I says, these families don't have the luxury of walking away. Who the hell am I to walk away? That notion stuck with me. And from then on, from that moment, sitting in the airport, and I says, we got to go back. I got to go back. I said to my husband, I knew I had to see this through. Wow. Now, see, you're making me feel like a slacker because I just sit here and I make stuff up. And uh, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was a fiction writer. I get that. And yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you my opinion on that real quick. I, I think Fiction versus nonfiction serve two very different beasts in me. And with fiction, that's about, that's something cathartic. It's, it's therapy. It's about getting my demons out and getting my soul out on a page. And I find with nonfiction, it's the opposite. It's about doing something greater than yourself. I think everyone needs a little bit of both. And that's why, you know, I love fiction. I love nonfiction, but I don't compare the two because they really are two very different things and they serve two very different purposes for me. Right. And was the, the spark of this story, did that, did that ever start off as thinking about a jumping off point for a work of fiction or was it always a, a true crime story in your head? It was always a true crime story in my head. Absolutely. I might go to fiction after this. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 re I really went through the emotional ringer with this story. I really did. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've been following the news. The um, suspect has till August 31st to lead authorities to the bodies. So there's a deadline. So we're going to know wow. something in the next few weeks. So uh, that's been pretty tense on this end. 
Yeah, I bet. Now, you also, you mentioned your husband briefly. I mean, are you dragging him around through all this? Or are you, <laughs> are you just saying, I got to go do this. I'll see you in a couple of weeks throughout this process. He's my chauffeur. <laughs> I'm like, like we got to drive here. <laughs> we got to drive here because I hate flying. And now this COVID stuff, I really can't fly. So he just drives me around. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? He's he he's he's like my silent partner in crime. He's you know, especially on an emotional level, I couldn't do this by myself. And you know, he's always there to pick up the pieces when I'm having a day, you know, and when I'm going through it. He's always been that one to pick up the pieces because it is it is very emotional doing this. And he's very investigative too. I mean, people like him for his accent. So when it comes to older women, I always sick him on them. I'm like, listen, you can talk to my husband and they love him. So they just give him everything. I'm like, how'd you do it? He's like, he's like, it's my accent. I says, okay. <laughs> so every time there's an older, every time there's an older woman, I, I, I say, John, you got this. <laughs> so, so he's the Irish one. Yeah. I guess <laughs> the charming brogue that I swear the ladies love it. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's excellent. Well, this is uh, it's it's a heck of a story, and and I applaud you for for digging in as deep as as you did. And I do think it it honors the families uh, who, for twenty years, I can't even imagine having those unanswered questions hanging over your head for that long. Now, you know, Lorene Bible, she she's the main woman behind this. You know, of course, we know that Ashley's parents are dead. They were shot to death before the fire started. Um, so Laura Bible's the real champion in this. I call her Queen Lorene. And the first time I met her, I did expect some grieving mother, like in a in a black veil, just just weeping. And um, she's anything but. And I think a lot of it is that stoicism you find in, in these parts of the country. And she won't cry. She, she won't show any emotion. She's um, a lot of people have called her cold, um, but I think that's just her reserve. I think she has that, that, that steely reserve and um, she's the most incredible. I mean, I couldn't do what she does. I, I really couldn't. And I don't know how she does it. Wow. Well, now all of your bios uh, also say that you uh, love rock and roll. <laughs> I do. Yeah. And uh, we take any chance we can get on writer types to talk about music as I'm, I'm, I'm a former musician myself. Now, are you a player or just a, a concert goer? <laughs> oh, am I a player? Well, writing has given me carpal tunnel. So I don't play as good as I used to, but um, I, I used to have an electric violin. I've, I've been playing violin most of my life. And most oh, people wow. don't, most people don't know that about me. Um, I used to be in rock bands and everything. And I, I'm both. I'm a little bit of both. I would play. I sing. I'm not going to sing now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I sing. Um, uh, and I do love going to concerts. Yeah, I've, I've always been very rock and roll. I'm very into classic rock and, and an alternative rock and new wave. You name it. I, I love it all. All right. So my, my go to questions for anybody when I'm talking about music, what was your first show and what was the best show you've ever seen? Oh, God. Well, my first show <laughs> it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a reflection on what I listened to because it was the dang new kids on the block. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness gracious. Gosh, you're getting like all my inner dark secrets here. Um, <laughs> Look, if that's as dark as it gets, I think, you're okay. I think a lot of people are in the same boat around that era. <laughs> no, I, I love it all. I'm, I'm, um, I used to be a lot more into like your head banging stuff. But, you know, I think you, you head bang for so long, your neck starts hurting. You know, it's just oh, yeah. not as fun anymore. <laughs> Well, that's it for this supersized episode. I had a lot to make up for, so thanks for listening and sticking to it. Maybe you split it up into two for your uh, daily walk around the park if you're able to get out. I have a new episode coming next week with three more great authors. I hope everyone's summer is going okay. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're wearing a mask, keeping distanced, and listening to science and the experts and not just talking heads on TV or politicians with an agenda during this crisis. We can all come through this with the help of a little common sense and discipline, both of which seem to be lacking in America these days, but we'll get there. You can always find us on Twitter at WriterTypes and our website, writertypespodcast.com. Thanks everyone all around the world for listening. I'll talk to you next time.